Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. Fragments of silicon. Now with 100% more saltine crackers. Welcome, everybody, to another installment of uh, Fragments of Silicon, your weekly vertical slice of gaming goodness and geek culture. I'm your host, Adam, and with me in the studio this week, as always, is Galax. Hello. Ogre. The third bill. What the hell? <laughs> and Petty Fan. Oh, God, what have I done? Uh, nothing. It's like... It's a Remember to put the, the music on the right volume this week. That's what you've done. Yeah. Or have I? On the other hand, I had nothing. I had no opener, so we were left with saltine crackers. <laughs> it's just the first thing that popped into mind. Uh, it's like, and I'm like, oh shit, we don't have an opener. Well, now we have an opener. Anything so, interesting happened this week? Yeah. Uh, it's already been an interesting show, and it's barely started. But we'll get into that in a little bit. So, but before that, how are you all doing this week? Massively better. Oh, yeah, that's right. You, for those who don't know, Ogre's kind of been rally, uh, sidelined with a head cold. I think that's over and done with, finally. Yeah. Well, you, did, my sinuses did not care for me much. <laughs> or did your head? No, it did not. Uh, and that, uh, that even affected recordings, did it not? Yeah, didn't record this week. Yeah. We'll record next week. It'll be fine. Right. Well, it's like, do you want to reveal the game that you that you're working on, or no? Nah. Right. I still want to. I still want to be wily about it. Damn it. <laughs> what could it mean? What could it mean? Anyway, uh, anything else going on this week? We had snow earlier this week for some reason. <laughs> I probably the lake effect. Yeah, it's like probably. Uh, let's see. Anyway, uh, Galax, how about you? Well, the temperature has continued to increase and decrease by approximately twenty degrees every couple of days. Um, so that's a thing. Uh, and I may be coming down with something, but nothing too bad yet, at least. Yeah. Otherwise, nothing serious. Uh, no major gaming news or anything. Okay. Uh, Penny Fan, how about you? Um, all right, I guess, other than I think I'm passing kidney stone. Ooh. Ooh. That, that, yeah. that, that's not a small thing. 
Of course, it's not a small thing. It's a kidney stone. I mean, technically, it's a pretty small thing, but it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. I'm sure Petty Fang can tell us all about that, but then he just turned into Mac. <laughs> I was about to say, it's like, do you want the full description? Do you want the Mac style description or just the, it was a kidney stone? It sucks. I'm, I'm good with a kidney stone. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, nothing real interesting from me. Yeah. Uh, let's see, I guess, well, myself, let's see. Well, I got new tires on my car this week. Yeah. Uh, How's that working out for you? Better, much better. It turns out my old tires were kind of in a bad, uh, bad sorts. One of them was kind of swollen and going. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Also got new windshield wipers. Uh, they were kind of a birthday gift from my mother. Who, you know, it's like if you remember back uh, October, she got into a car crash, and well, you know, she recently got a settlement out of that. So, you know, it was kind of a present to me for you know helping out and all that shit and. Yeah, I'm just glad everything worked out as well as it did in that situation. So, uh, outside of that, uh, that's uh, in show news. Uh, we recorded another special episode on Sunday. We recorded a, a review of Strife Veterans Edition, provided by our good friends at the Night Dive Studios. Uh, so, be sure to check that out. Also, we are having a weird rendering issue on iTunes. Now, from what I've gathered from our uh, iOS and Android listeners, the episodes are showing up there, but for some reason they're not showing up in the PC version of uh, iTunes. And I'm, we're kind of at a loss to figure out why yet. Uh, you know, and I'm not exactly sure where to look here. But maybe it's something that will sort itself out. And let's see, I think that's about it as far as show news goes. Yeah, also, Max Kickstarter is still going. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's not a Kickstarter. Or um, Indiegogo, rap. Yeah, Max uh, Indiegogo uh, campaign for the Starship Moonhawk audiobook is going. Uh, uh, Petty Fan or Galax, why don't you post that in the chat room? No. Already halfway there. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, uh, it's up to, what, 415? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's like uh, that's about 28% funded. It's got about 44 days to go. You know, if you want to contribute, uh, I'm sure Mac and the uh, Uplate crew will be uh, most grateful. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no progress, but we are making some progress, so that's good. It's well, it, it's got it's still got a month and a half to go. So, you know, I, I think it's mm-hmm. making good headway for what for what it is. Yeah. Uh, mm. You know, plus I, I I talked to a couple of people today who who are going to donate to the Kickstarter. You know, oh, that's good. Yeah, it, well, I talked to a couple of our uh, longtime fans, uh, Fiery Blitz and uh, uh, Pokeprof. Yeah, neat. Yeah, so they'll be helping out when, when when they get the money for it. Anyway, so on that note, I think it's time we get to the interview because you know this is going to be a long one, folks. Because joining us this week are Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick. Uh, two of the, uh, I wanna, you know, two very notable people in the video games industry. Now, one could even say legends. One could say that. Yeah. Well, I've, heard, I, I've certainly heard, heard the term used in conjunction with the both of you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so... 
I guess we, let's get started at the beginning. Uh, how did you two end up in the video game industry? I'll let Ron go first, actually. Okay. Um, you there, Ron? Fascinating answer. <laughs> okay. Well, then I'll start. Yeah, I'm, I'm 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 here. Sorry. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. I, I had I had my microphone muted. <laughs> oh yeah, Adam. Ron was probably playing World of Warcraft actually, and <laughs> you probably just you know forced him to pause. You know. No, I have not. I have not played World of Warcraft in four or five hours. So. Okay. <laughs> Were you busy like sacking or something or whatever? Oh, good. Yeah, okay. So so Ron, how did you get into the video game business? Well, you know, I I, I was just you know I started I guess you know, programming when I was, I guess, in, like, high school or probably even junior high and just started making games and and all that stuff. Um, I had a job, uh, before I got the job at Lucasfilm, I had a job at a place called uh, Human Engineered Software, and I worked on I worked on the game, and they kind of went out of business. And uh, I had done Commodore 64 programming there, which is kind of how I got the job at Lucasfilm, you know, because Lucasfilm needed a Commodore 64 programmer. So it was kind of your know, random luck in a lot of ways getting the job at Lucasfilm. Yeah, and I, if I recall correctly, in those days, they made games uh, for the Atari 800 first. Yeah, yeah. The the game that I was brought on to work on, uh, that was uh, the first Commodore 64 game they had done. The games before that, um, Gary can correct me if I'm wrong, but th- those were all Atari 800 games. Yeah, there was actually a, uh, a, a joint venture between Atari and Lucasfilm that Atari funded, but I'll go into that when it's my turn. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I, well, does Ron have anything else to add to his entry? I I don't no. I don't know. Other than Ron was like getting ready to like run out of the house, I think, and the phone rang. That was kind of interesting. But, uh, yeah, and and he decided he he, he wasn't going to answer the phone, and he decided to answer it. And there was somebody from Lucasfilm on the other end of the phone, which is which, and the legend went from there. <laughs> so so uh, let's see. In my case, um, basically, I had uh, actually had a job working at Atari. Before that, I was sort of in the comic book industry. Mm-hmm. I worked for a guy by the name of Neil Adams. He used to draw Batman and Green Lantern, and I don't know if you guys know much about com- the comic book industry or not. Uh, it's not our forte, but we know okay. a fair bit about it. Okay. And so, and that's what I had wanted to do. Uh, you know, I started out as a, a comic and animation artist, and uh, I lived in um, the Bay Area in a place called Santa Cruz, which is just on the other side of the hill from Silicon Valley. And so Atari was starting up um, some additional development, and somebody over there got the bright idea that we should hire some artists to do art rather than trying to you know, teach programmers how to do art. It might make more sense to teach artists how to work with certain tools, and certainly not program, but work with um, tools that let, let us you know, um, put pixels up on the screen. So I was hired sort of as a test case, I worked at Atari for about eight months, and then a friend of mine said, hey, there's um, this really interesting thing going on. Um, Lucasfilm is starting a games division. And uh, I, in turn, interviewed with them. Uh, I had managed to 
to weasel a trip to SIGGRAPH from Atari because what happened was I had actually been um, allowed to requisition that, and then they sort of killed all the requisitions, but somebody kind of forgot about my requisition, so I still had the plane ticket and everything else, so I went. And when I went, I interviewed with uh, people from Lucasfilm, which in turn, they brought me in to do a test. I actually did the uh, Jaggy Monster for Rescue on Fractalus for David Fox. And as a result of that, they went ahead and hired me as the first full-time artist for the games division. And as I mentioned before, the games division was a joint venture where what happened was um, in, those, in, in, the, in the earlier days, Atari had, was making a lot of money, and they said, uh, you know, Lucasfilm is just down the road from us. There's an awful lot of crossover between the um, audience of Star Wars and what we do. So let's give George Lucas a million dollars to do something interesting for us. And so that was how the games division started at Lucasfilm. It was through a joint venture that was funded to the tune of a million dollars by Atari. Ah, yeah, I, I think I've heard of that, about that before. Like, plus, I, I think uh, like the Star the Star Wars games on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred did really well. Like well, the, the thing that was interesting about that is both I think and Ron can speak to this, but when Ron and I went on, we thought we'd actually get an opportunity to work on Star Wars games. And that turned out not to be the case because the licensing division of Star of Lucasfilm had made you know, very good lucrative deals for Lucasfilm licensing you know, Star Wars and in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark and anything else that had the Lucasfilm brand to external development um, groups because they could actually get an upfront payment of a million or a couple million dollars without having to actually create the game and just license it and then get a royalty from that. So when Ron and I, certainly when Ron and I first started for at least a number of years, we were not allowed to do um, Lucasfilm-related products because those things were being licensed very um, to, to larger companies that were paying a premium for that. So as a result, we ended up doing our own original stuff. And I think as a, you know, if that hadn't happened, there probably wouldn't have been a maniac mansion. I mean, Ron can kind of talk a little bit about that if he wants to. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I think not, you know, not being able to make Star Wars games was a huge blessing in disguise, because I think had we been able to make them, it's, it's all we would have made. And and you do see that in you know in Lucasfilm in the later years when they were able to make Star Wars games they really ditched everything else and that's kind of all they ended up making in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, the, the new millennium LucasArts was pretty much Star Wars, Star Wars, and more Star Wars. Yeah. When they made games. Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. Indiana uh, I, Jones. I mean, nope. It's more Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, Ron worked on that one Indiana Jones game that we worked on and that was kind of a, a, a thing that we had to sort of fit into our schedule and rush out because somebody had dropped the ball. And so I think Ron and Noah and David Fox kind of had to devote time to that, which actually ended up putting Monkey Island on hold. Mm-hmm. And, well, so uh, I guess one of the big questions here is, so how did the uh, Maniac Mansion arise? Now, you know, how, how did the concept come about and um, how did you pitch the idea to Lucas? Well, I think, you know, I had worked on the, you know, the Commodore 64 games that I was working on. I was really just porting them, you know, from the Atari to the Commodore 64. And I think Gary and I just developed a friendship because, you know, we liked, 
we liked campy horror movies and, you know, we kind of wanted to make a game that was about campy horror movies, which is really, you know, where, where Maniac Mansion came from was wanting to do that. And I think what's interesting, you know, cause a lot of people ask you, well, how did you, you know, pitch Maniac Mansion, you know, to Lucasfilm? And, and I don't ever remember that we did really. It was just one of those weird things where we just, you know, we kind of, did a design for it and Gary started doing a lot of art and, you know, we kind of worked on it and, you know, at the time at Lucasfilm games, you know, there was, you know, Steve Arnold was running the group and he pretty much just made all the decisions, you know, about what we worked on. So there was really no pitch, you know, for Maniac Mansion in, in the conventional sense. Yeah. I mean, when we worked at Lucasfilm, one of, one of the blessings I would say when we first started was, you know, we were working for this sort of enormous, when I say, very um, uh, successful company that was making movies. And the game thing was kind of a side note, and nobody was paying a whole lot of attention to us because they were making so much money off of things like, you know, Return of the Jedi and stuff like that, that a, a little group of, I'm going to say, a dozen people that cost a couple million dollars a year was almost a, not even hardly a blip on their radar. So we kind of lacked any adult supervision, yeah. which meant that we could kind of do whatever we wanted to do as long as it kind of made enough sense to Steve. And so, you know, I think Ron and I just kind of, you know, decided to do this and the fact that the two of us decided to do it and then we got kind of enough support from the rest of the group. There are people like David Fox and people like Noah and Chip Morningstar that, um, you know, it just kind of happened. Right. And so... Where did the decision to go with the, uh, well, the scum system come from? The, the scum system, you know, th that whole thing, well, there's a couple of things. You know, a lot of people talk about the scum system and, you know, they very much equate it to the verb, you know, interface, you know, the, having the verbs at the bottom of the screen. And, you know, the scum system itself was really, you know, a programming language that I had developed to, you know, to build the game in, which was a little bit independent from the, you know, the scum interface that people think of. But, you know, the programming language really came from kind of being in over my head, you know, because I was, building this game on the Commodore 64 and, you know, I was just going to do the whole thing in assembly language. And, you know, I probably got maybe six months into the game and realized that was absolutely insane, you know, to be able to do. So that's when, you know, doing a, a very customizable, you know, language uh, to do adventure games was kind of born, you know, out of that. Mm. But, uh, you know, the, the scum interface, the verbs on the screen, you know, I, that has a lot to do, you know, with my frustration with text adventures and, you know, not liking parsers and, and all of that. And, you know, Gary and I just trying to, you know, come up with a way that, that we really just kind of put those words on the screen. And David Fox had done a little bit of experimentation with that, with the Labyrinth game. You know, where, where kind of the verbs and sentences, or they were on these little, you know, wheels that spun. So, you know, he had kind of, you know, dipped his toe in the water on that, um, you know, before Gary and I, had, uh, you know, had done Maniac Mansion. I mean, I like to say the genesis of a lot of this stuff is the fact that Ron is just kind of lazy. <laughs> and because Ron's one of my greatest little... attributes is that I'm yeah. lazy. So Ron, Ron's going, well, this is just too much work. Let's do something that's easier, you know. Let's do something that makes more sense. Let's just, you know, construct a sentence rather than type this crap in. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I gotta admit, I, I have a, I've always had a hard time getting into the very earliest adventure games because of the card surf. Uh, I got into adventure games around the time of King's Quest V, so I was uh, I was kind of raised on the point-and-click style. And I, I can completely understand where you're coming from. It's like you know, nothing against like the older Sierra games, but they are pretty clunky, even by like the standards of the 90s. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, played a, I played a lot of, you know, pure text adventures. I mean, there's the, you know, Infocom stuff and, you know, the stuff before that, and when things are are pure text, I don't I don't mind the parser as much because I I feel like I'm I'm in the world of text. But you know it was those first graphic adventures you know that Sierra really pioneered that were that hybrid of text and graphics, and those are the ones that kind of bothered me because I felt like I was being brought into this world of like images on the screen and I just I didn't want to type anymore you know like like I didn't mind typing in the text adventures right so where did the story of Maniac Mansion come from um, I think that you know Ron and I both shared sensibility two sensibilities one that we really both like kind of what I'm going to call popular culture stuff but you know, kind of weird stuff like, you know, monster movies and horror films and stuff like that. And the other thing is we kind of shared this sort of same bizarre sense of humor so that you would you would take anything, you know, you'd go, you'd watch some movie like, you know, Friday the 13th movie and you'd go, well, why, why are those guys splitting up? It's so stupid. And then we'd make fun of them, you know. It's sort of like that Mystery Science Theater 3000 thing where you kind of make fun of this stuff. And making fun of this stuff was actually more interesting to us than the stuff just by itself. You know, I think I did like a, a drawing for Maniac Mansion, and I put a sign out front which said, you know, danger, trespassers will be horribly mutilated, and people would just go in no matter what, you know, and we, we just thought that was funny. <laughs> uh, well, I always like the, the sense of humor of Maniac Mansion. Yeah. Is that how you got the multiple character idea? Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't really remember, maybe Gary does, but I don't really remember how the whole multiple character thing came about, you know, what the, what the genesis of that was. Do you, do you remember, Gary? I think what it had to do with was kind of back to what I just said, which is basically, you know, you'd watch a horror movie where a bunch of teenagers, like, would go into a house and start having sex or doing whatever they were doing, and the first thing they would do is split up which, you know, was, was crazy because the minute they split up, they'd start being picked off one after the other. And so I think it was sort of there was this cast of characters that we kind of related to where there was, you know, maybe half a dozen of these kids that had kind of different attributes. You know, kind of when you look at something even like uh, more recent, like uh, Cabin in the Woods, where you have kind of these stereotypes. And so we were just going, you know, it's sort of these stereotypes of these teenagers, kids, when we first started out, they were actually much younger, but we actually went to teenagers. And, you know, it sort of felt like they kind of fit together as kind of this team that would go into, I'm going to use the word, a creepy old mansion. <laughs> and it sort of made sense from there. Mm. Uh, uh, were there any kind of movies or uh, television shows that influenced Maniac Mansion? Um. You know, I think there were a number of movies. I mean, Little Shop of Horrors had just come out, and, you know, so we had a man-eating plant in there. Not Chuck the Plant, but we had a man-eating plant. 
And I think just, you know, Ron and I were watching things like, you know, I'll say Return of the Living Dead or, you know, Friday. I remember Reanimator. I remember watching Reanimator. Yeah, wonderful zombie, you know, perfect, uh, you know, uh, uh, severed head zombie movie, whatever you want to call it, you know. But uh, And actually, Reanimator, you know, is kind of a funny movie. My mom wouldn't think so, but Ron and I thought it was funny. <laughs> Mm. Oh, uh, and okay. I, uh, there's a couple of things I've been. I, I need to ask. Where, where did the chainsaw joke come from? With the chainsaw and the gas? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, or, or the chainsaw and the lack of gas? Well, it's actually more of a brick joke now, isn't it? Because there well, is there is chainsaw fuel, but it's not in that. It's not in Maniac Mansion. That that's correct. Well, I think that at least when I drew the kitchen. And I was thinking, you know, these people are kind of, you know, weird uh, or, you know, odd mutants. They're sort of mutants or whatever they are, is that, you know, on the wall, you usually have kitchen knives. And so I just thought it would be funny to put a chainsaw on the wall. I think the no gas joke was kind of more of a a David Fox or Ron thing. I'm not really sure because, you know, part of the problem with that particular implement is if you have a chainsaw and you have gas, and every every player is just kind of you know uh, figures they can solve every problem with a cha- with a chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, and and what problems can't be solved with a chainsaw? Yeah. Well, the answer is uh, every problem if it doesn't have any gas. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, and I mean, so I'm, just... I'm sure you know the, as Gary said, the the lack of gas was was much more of a of a practical solution than it was a humor thing. You know, it was we can't give people a working chainsaw. So you know, what do we do about that? Well, let's just not have some gas. You know, and that that kind of solved that whole problem of of people being able to use the chainsaw anywhere they want. I mean, to a certain degree, these things, you know, we just thought they were funny at the time, and then they kind of grew into these other things. You know, when you think of something like, I'll use the, I'll say Chuck the Plant, you know. Chuck the Plant was basically Steve Arnold would always say, name it Chuck. You know, we would go, you know, we're, we're going to have this game, we would say, is there somebody named Chuck? And I don't even know why he would say that all the time, so we just decided to name a plant Chuck. And these things kind of had a tendency to take on a life of their own. Speaking of such things, uh, I gotta ask about the infamous hamster dad. Oh, that was all David Fox. Ah. Oh, and maybe me a little bit, but Ron can tell that story. Yeah, I, I didn't have anything to do with the hamster thing. That was that was something that uh, you know David kind of surprised me with one day because he had very secretly got Gary to draw the art the exploding hamster and you know david had gone through and you know wired it up and stuff in the game and hadn't told me about it and then you know called me into his office uh you know one day and just you know wanted to show you know one just just showed it to me and i mean i, I thought it was absolutely hilarious so it stayed if i mean it goes to sort of the whole power of the scum system because it was something that could, you know you could just wire up things like that so quickly that why not <laughs> if I recall correctly, there were certain elements that didn't find that joke very funny. Uh, well, specifically, uh, I don't know how much uh, involvement you guys had with the NES version of Maniac Mansion, but the answer is we were there while Doug Crockford was was you know kind of 
you know, haranguing with Nintendo about stuff. Right. And, and yeah, they didn't even know it was in it. Yeah, yeah the, the exploding hamster thing, you know, they, they didn't actually catch. Um, you know, that was something that made it into the Nintendo version of the game. Mm-hmm. The, the, the first the first production of it. The second production, they took it out. But if you have one of those, you know, you know, coveted uh, exploding hamster NES games, I think it's worth a little bit more money. I don't know if that actually happened. I think they did take it out, oh, but I don't yeah. know if there were any more copies made with with oh, okay. the hamster thing. Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know that for sure, but I seem to remember that that you know that we did take it out, but they didn't actually press another run of cartridges after it was actually removed. I mean, I remember having to like. Well, Mike Ebert was doing the art, and I remember we had to like go in and change a bunch of stuff. Like we had, you know. Uh, an arcade game called Tuna Diver or something, and we had to change the name of it. I think it was Kill, like. Kill Thrill. Was Kill done. Thrill. Yeah. yeah. I, I know the joke that you're talking about. It's Muff Diver. Uh, oh, well, I don't, yeah, I don't I think, think it was think we, changed to Tuna Diver. I don't think we actually called it Muff Diver. Yeah, it was, Yeah, it would, it would have always been Tuna Diver. Yeah, it was Tuna Diver. It was kind of like, you know, don't be a tuna head. You know about that, right? Uh, not offhand, no. There's okay. there's a line um, at the very very beginning of the game where uh, Dave is talking to the characters, you know, and and if Bernard is there, you know, Dave says that they're going to go in the mansion, and then you know Bernard, um, you know, says that he's leaving, and I had originally wrote that line where Dave says, um, "Don't be a shithead," and uh, you know, I was kind of told by Steve Arnold, who's running the games group, that, you know, I, I can't say the word shit in a Lucasfilm game. And that really kind of, you know, ticked me off that I, you know, that I couldn't say, you know, that I couldn't say shit in this game. And I guess I, you know, I probably, you know, stomped around and pouted for a couple of weeks about it. And then, you know, um, I think I just replaced it with don't be a tuna head. Just because, you know, I couldn't say the word shit, so I just replaced it with the word tuna. And I think it was kind of an act of defiance more than anything. But, you know, in retrospect, when I look back on it, I, you know, I kind of think it's a better line in a lot of ways, you know, than just saying don't be a shithead. You know, I think, you know, don't be a tuna head is a lot more interesting. You know, you can buy T-shirts on the web now that say don't be a tuna head. You know, it's just it's just kind of the thing that, you know, clicked with people in an odd way. Yeah. It's always curious to see what clicks with people and what doesn't. I mean, I could name some very famous memes out there, and I would have never guessed in a million years that they would become as popular as they did. Yeah, I, I don't think you can you can predict or engineer that stuff. You know, if you if you look at things that become you know really popular, you know, weird things that have made it into the games that we have made, it's just never the stuff you think of. You know, and and if you try to engineer something and you go, oh yeah, we're gonna do this little gag and this is gonna become really popular, it never is. It's just always the stuff you don't think of. So, you know, I think the solution to that is you just put a bunch of funny shit in the game, and then you know one of those things will kind of click with people, and then you know everybody thinks you're a genius. I mean, the other thing is when when Ron and I did that. We didn't have the internet. I mean, what happened was we had no idea what we were doing to a certain degree because we'd make this thing and then we'd like, you know, send out review copies and like we'd wait a couple of months and then like a printed magazine would come in the mail 
with like a you know a review of our game or whatever or you know I mean that was the way the world worked in those days you know you you put your stuff in software etc you put it in you know Toys R Us and you find out you know in in you know 60 days or 90 days or 120 days you know whether or not people found the thing interesting you know whether or not you got reviews I mean conversely you know when you put it on the shelves of a place like Toys R Us I mean, if you ever heard the story about this or not, but on the back of the box, which Ron and I thought was clever at the time, we had this uh, list of stuff where we said, you know, Maniac Mansion, a story of, you know, love, lust, cattle prods, you know, classic cars, you know, mutants, whatever it was, it was this long list of stuff on the original box. And a parent complained that the word lust, who didn't even own a Commodore 64, I think, complained that on the back of the box was the word lust. We actually had to pull all of the boxes out of Toys R Us because it's one parent complained and changed the box. That was the way the world worked. I mean, it was, it was you know, I'm going to use the word kind of alien to the way it works now today. Yeah. I, I, I think that things still happens with packaged goods, but, you know, that, that's such a small, you know, it's a smaller segment than it was in, say, the 80s. Well, I think, you know, the thing for me, you know, doing games now versus doing games back then was, you know, the thing that Gary alluded to a little bit is when you got done with a game and you released it, it, it went into a black hole, you know, for like three or four months. You, you really had no idea whether the game was doing well, whether people were liking the game or anything. And, you know, in today's world, you release a game and within four or five hours of that game being released, you pretty much know how that game's going to do. You know, you're, you're reading all this feedback from people. You're getting, you know, instant sales data on stuff. And it's just, it was just very, very different, you know, back then. And I remember when, you know, after Monkey Island 1, I started working on Monkey Island 2, you know, almost immediately after Monkey Island 1 came out. And we really had no idea how Monkey Island 1 did. You know, we didn't really know, um, you know, what, what feedback from players were or anything. And, and I think that was a good thing because we just kind of had to, you know, jump into it with, uh, you know, with, with, both, with both feet. Where you, where you really don't do that now. I mean, there's so much kind of analysis of the market that goes into stuff that it just makes it, um, it's just very, very different. Yeah, and, and, you know, conversely, now we're doing Thimbleweed Park. You know, we have, a, a, you know, I'm going to say a reasonably vocal group of backers who, you know, we can ask stuff, we, we put up stuff on our blog, and we hear all kinds of stuff right away, you know, what people like and don't like, you know. And no doubt. Uh, that's a common thing I've heard from Kickstarter projects. You know, people can be very loud about it, you know, which kind of makes sense since, you know, they did put money into this project. Yeah, yeah I, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of that is, is just about communicating, you know, well with people. It, you know, it seems like, um, you know, a lot of Kickstarters get in trouble you know, not so much because they are late, but just because they disappear, you know, that you don't really, you don't really understand, you know, what's going on. And it's just about, you know, I think about clear communication and, and expectations, um, you know, with stuff or, you know, hopefully that's what it is. Yeah. And, and we've made a real effort, you know, thus far to sort of, you know, keep our, um, our viewing public informed. Indeed, and it's like uh, I, I've seen your Kickstarter 
page and you log in, it's pretty regularly updated. And your Twitter uh, feed, Ron, I saw some stuff there today. Yeah, yeah, I like. I mean, I like to, I like to, I like to post stuff. You know, I like to kind of talk about what I'm doing and and show things. And you know, so far we've updated the dev blog. You know, at least twice a week. You know, I imagine that that may drop down to once a week at some point. Um, but right now, there's you know, there's a lot of interesting things going on. So there's just there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And you know, as Gary said, it is it's great to get people's feedback. You know, we can we can ask questions and. And kind of you know take people's temperature on stuff and figure out you know kind of navigate our way through it and you know I I think it's really interesting you know I I have not I have not done a game before where I have been so involved with you know with people this early on in the process and you know it is a lot of fun. I mean, do you want iOS and Android? Do you want voice acting? Which one would you rather have first? You know what I mean? We we actually switch those two goals based upon popular demand. And well, have you encountered any major problems with the backers yet, or has been pretty smooth thus far? Still feeling the love right now. Hmm. Right now. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Like I have seen some Kickstarters where things turned ugly for one reason or another. Yeah. Wait, wait yeah, till I start fucking up. You know? Yeah. I mean, again, it, I think a lot of it is about communicating. You know, I think it's about it's about communicating with people so you know people really understand and and you know one of the goals with the dev blog is to really talk about the process. So it's so it's not even that we're just you know explaining to people, oh, this bad thing happened, but if we're kind of talking about it enough, you know, people understand well, why this bad thing happened. You know, the, these were the kind of assumptions we made that ended up not being true, and you know, this is how we're going to kind of you know go about fixing it. So, that's that's kind of the goal anyway. I mean, oh, I'm going to say this. You know, people who haven't made software don't really, you know, I'm going to say don't really connect a lot on a lot of levels as to how complicated of a process it is. Mm-hmm. And so, like in my life, and I've worked in a lot on a lot of stuff, big companies. I'm, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, Lucasfilm, Disney, whatever. The best I've ever done is two weeks late. That's the best I've ever done, and that's like phenomenal, if you know what I mean. Right. Well, well speaking of such things, Ron, you were there when uh, Double Fine p- pitched the uh, the Double Fine Adventure, uh, Broken Age. Right. You know, uh, in fact, we were watching the uh, the original Kickstarter video, and you're in that. Very briefly, yes. <laughs> well, I, I mean, what, what was it like when that was going down at Double Fine? Um, yeah, I mean that that thing kind of took off beyond, you know, I think what they what they expected, right? So, uh, you know, they they'd originally asked for four hundred thousand dollars and. You know, there was this genuine concern that that would be a hard number to hit, you know, and you know, and and rightfully so. So when it really did, you know, take off, uh, you know, it was kind of unexpected, you know, at some level, and there was a lot of kind of scrambling around to, you know, to do that. But you know, I wasn't, you know, super involved in that whole thing, you know, because I was making the cave, and we were kind of right in the throes of of that project at the time. Um, so I wasn't, you know, directly involved in all the, you know, the mayhem during that. Well, the the, the question that relates here is, uh, were there any lessons from that Kickstarter that you applied to the Thimbleweed Park Kickstarter? 
But yeah, I mean, I think I think the big lesson, you know, that that I learned from that, and and I don't and I don't think this is necessarily a you know a mistake that they made, but with the, with the simple weed park one, it was really about setting expectations. You know, Gary and I spent a lot of time on that Kickstarter, making sure we were very clear about what we're going to build, and that this is the scope of the project and this is what the art looks like and, you know, this is what we're doing. And, you know, we wanted, we wanted to make sure that we, we weren't in a situation where we were asking for less than we needed. You know, if, if we needed 300,000, we didn't want to ask for 150 and then kind of expect to beat that goal. We wanted to really ask for 350 because, you know, our, you know, nightmare scenario in that case is that we actually get, you know, 250 when we need 350 and then you're, you're just kind of screwed. I mean, that's, that's always the case. Even, you know, even working with publishers, you know, a lot of developers will go in and ask for less money than they actually need to finish the game, kind of hoping that once the game gets approved, they can go back and get more money from the publisher. And that's, you know, that's always a dangerous situation to be in, you know, whether you're doing it with a publisher or whether you're doing it with backers or whether you're doing it with investors, you know, it is, it is a game that sometimes gets played. And you know, we just wanted to be very clear that this is what we're building and this is how much money we want for it. And then to, you know, do something that we had a lot of confidence that we could deliver. I mean, one of the pieces of that, for example, even is the rewards. And I went out and, very thoroughly priced those rewards out. And that's what it costs to deliver those rewards. And so, you know, if we're going to ask, you know, for, you know, $150 for a box or something, it's, it's not because the box costs $2, you know what I mean? It costs a bunch of money to make those things. And the um, quantities that you make those in, you know, is a sliding scale. So, you know, we wanted to very realistically, you know, be able to cover our costs because that's another thing, you know, when, when I researched Kickstarters and Ron researched Kickstarters, everybody said, you know, make sure you build in the cost of your rewards because a lot of people have gotten in trouble on that stuff. Oh, yeah. It's like I, we know people personally who got into trouble, with that, especially if you're dealing with international shipping. Yeah. I've heard bad, bad things about that. So yeah, we, we were just we were very careful to cost all that stuff out. You know, and, and we knew, you know, we knew how much of those rewards were going to cost to fulfill, and we knew how much of the game was going to cost to make, and, you know, we needed to make sure that we asked for enough money to cover both of those things, you know, so we didn't get caught, um, you know, in a, in a bad situation, so. And, yeah, and a lot of people need absolution for having pirated our games. Well, going back to the LucasArts days, uh, what else did you work on in between Maniac Mansion and uh, Monkey Island? Um, I had done, see, I got done with with Maniac Mansion, and then uh, when David Fox was doing Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, um, I I didn't really directly work on the game, but I had spent a lot of time kind of upgrading the scum system because I was always I was also doing the scum system for um, Loom, you know, and Brian Moriarty was doing Loom, so I was spending a lot of time during that just kind of getting the scum system, you know, to a point that it could be used with games other than just Maniac Mansion. So I spent a bunch of time in that. 
then I started working on Monkey Island, and I spent maybe six months or so uh, working on Monkey Island. Mm-hmm. Then the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade game came up where that kind of license became available and Lucasfilm needed a game very, very quickly. And so that's when, you know, David Fox and Noah Falstein and I got together. So I put Monkey Island on hold and then, you know, did the Indiana Jones, the last crusade game. And then when that was done, then I kind of pulled Monkey Island back and started working on that again. Mm. And okay. So where did the idea for Monkey Island come from? Well, Monkey Island, started out I mean the the very genesis of that game was that I was you know I was trying to figure out a game that well I mean at the time you know Sierra Online was really kicking our butt in terms of sales mm-hmm. you know th- their games would sell 10 times as much as anything that we would make and I kind of looked at that situation and you know I I, I kind of thought you know I want to I want to do something that that you know it, it can can sell well and maybe is you know popular at some level and I was and you know much like today you know fantasy games just did really well you know they they, they sold well and but I didn't really like fantasy you know I, I still don't it's not really a genre that I enjoy that much and so I was just trying to think of something that kind of embodied a lot of the characteristics of fantasy but really wasn't fantasy and that's you know where pirates came to my head was you know you pirates they you know they jump around with swords and they have you know they have a lot of that same stuff and you know i love the pirates of the caribbean ride and so those two things just kind of fit well together so that's that's really the genesis of that you know of kind of the idea i mean the story itself you know has kind of another genesis but just in terms of doing a game about you know pirates really comes from those two things and, well, I suppose while we're on the subject, where did the story come from? Well, the story, I mean, that's a very long and involved process. You know, it, coming up with a story for anything is. You know, I, I spent a lot of time just, you know, writing these very short <laughs> one-page stories for stuff. And nothing was really, you know, clicking inside my head with that. And then I had, uh, I read this book called On Stranger Tides. And that book, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's, a, it's about pirates, but it had some really interesting elements to me that, you know, in in reading that book. And that's when kind of things kind of clicked inside my head, you know, because I had a lot of these weird ideas that weren't making sense. But after reading that book, you know, everything came together. And and a lot of the, a lot of the influence of that book is really on, you know, Guybrush's character, because, you know, he's kind of a fish out of water. You know, he, he shows up not really, you know, knowing how to be a pirate. And, you know, the lead, the lead character in Stranger Tides is a very similar situation that he's a little bit of fish out of water. And it was that, it was that kind of thing that kind of clicked in my head where I went, you know what, this, the lead character from McGowan should be somebody who doesn't know how to be a pirate. And, and the, the benefit of that is that the player doesn't know how to be a pirate either, right? So, so the player's goals and the main character's goals are very aligned at the beginning of the game. You know, the game has to show them both what they need to do to be a pirate. Mm-hmm. Where does the name Guybrush Threepwood come from? <laughs> well, Guybrush, you know, Guybrush didn't have a name for a long time. You know, he was, we, we just called him the guy. He was just the guy. 
And then Steve Purcell, who had done, um, I guess, most of the animation on Monkey Island, he was, you know, doing little animation tests for me. Uh, you know, and I kind of look at his animation tests and give him feedback. And and since we'd have a name for the character, um, you know, he he would just he would just call this character Guy, and he was using a program called D-Paint uh, Animator. And when when you would take a little image out of D-Paint and you would save it off. Um, you know, to the disk, it was called a brush. So he would just call these files guy brush because they were just the little brush of the guy. And so I was just constantly seeing these files every day called guy brush, you know, guy brush. And the name just kind of grew on me in a way. And it just, it seemed like a strange, uh, quirky name. So, I mean, the name came from a file name, essentially. Hmm. I would not have guessed that. Yeah, you know, I th- I think I mean, it's it's a story that I like to tell because it it really says that you should just be open to ideas coming from anywhere. You know, just the the weirdest things will will often spark an idea. You know, in, inside you. So it's a it's a, it's a strange little story, but it's a, you know it's a good one in a lot of ways. Do you have any other examples of that happening? Um. I don't know if I can recall any, you know, right off, but it's just, you know, when you're doing brainstorming and stuff, you know, you just, it's, it's just about people throwing out weird ideas, you know, and, and it's like, you know, there's an old saying, there's no such thing as a bad idea during a brainstorm because you just want to throw everything out because something, you know, somebody might latch onto and go, you know what, this is kind of interesting. Let's explore this a little bit more. It's just, you know, it's a part of that creative process. You know, the creative process is not, this, you know, ordered process where you go through and figure things out. It's it's just a mess, you know, in a lot of ways. Mm. Right, and uh, speaking of such things, uh, where did the insult uh, sword fighting come from? Well, the insult sword fighting came from watching a lot of uh, old pirate movies. And, you know, you know, back in like the 1930s, you know, Errol Flynn type stuff. And the thing that occurred to me from watching those movies is that when these pirates were fighting, they spent a lot more time talking to each other than they did actually fighting. You know, they would just hurl insults and, you know, they'd kind of, you know, swing from ropes. And, and it was all about this, like, dialogue they were having together. And one thing I didn't want to do with Monkey Island is I didn't want to have an action component. You know, Sierra had done a little bit of that in some of their games where you'd be playing this adventure game and then you had to play a little action game. And that always bothered me because I kind of felt these adventure games are really about solving puzzles. They're about thinking your way through problems. And the insult sword fighting it just made a lot of sense because now, you know, it was turning this, this um, sword fighting, which is typically an action thing, was turning it into a puzzle. And it also fit well with, you know, what I was seeing in those old pirate movies of, of the, you know, the pirates insulting each other while they fought. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, speaking of the Sierra games, uh, uh, Monkey, like Monkey Island 1 is like the last LucasArts game that features death. Uh, you know, I always felt like LucasArts kind of react, you know, a way to differentiate their adventure games is to get rid of, like, uh, well, the Sierra style of death and getting stuck and all that stuff. Yeah, it was actually Monkey Island was was the first game that we did that actually didn't have death. 
there was a lot of there's a lot of kind of death and dead ends in Maniac Mansion. Um, definitely was in the indie game. There wasn't as much in Zach, but there were definitely you know kind of dead ends and stuff you could get into. So I still have nightmares about that name. Yeah, and so so you know Monkey Island that was that was the game where I you know I, I had written this article for the you know for the game design journal back at the time called Why Adventure Games Suck. And the copy of it is, is on my blog if anyone wants to read it. And one of the little points of that thing was just about, you know, no death in games. And so Monkey Island in a lot of ways was with taking that article I'd written and then, you know, following those design rules very rigidly. And, and one of those things was just was having no death. And there, I mean, there is a way to die in, in Monkey Island, you know, if you, you know, um, you know, go underwater for longer than 10 minutes, but you know that's kind of played as a joke, you know, in, in a lot of ways, and it, it's it's quite difficult to actually do. But for the rest of the game, there there are no dead ends or deaths in that game. Right. Well, and that begs another question: Did you ever get any flack for any perceived slights against uh, you know the uh, the Sierra games? No, uh, no, not at, not at the time. <laughs> Understandable, actually, because I I distinctly remember the Sierra side of things and. The King's Quest Five, uh, you know, just that, some of that stuff still annoys me. Yeah, but to a certain degree, you know, we we also look at the Sierra games and go, if it wasn't for those games, we might not have done a lot of the stuff we did because those things actually, on a level, were very inspirational to us to actually attempt to do our own types of adventure games. They kind of, you know were a light bulb that went off in our head. Certainly a light bulb that went off, I think, in Ron's head when we were trying to figure out what the heck Maniac Mansion was going to be. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, right at the beginning of, you know, of Gary and I doing Maniac Mansion, we didn't really know it was an adventure game. You know, we, 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 you know, we had this idea of this weird mansion, and, you know, we had a lot of funny, you know, gags and characters and locations, but we didn't really know what the game was. And, it really came, you know, for me, uh, you know, watching my cousin play King's Quest One, and just, you know, just kind of watching him play that because I had not seen King's Quest One before that, and and when I watched that, it, it you know, it clicked in my head that oh, well, you know, Maniac Mansion should really be an adventure game. You know, everything we'd done just makes sense, and I don't think I'd really thought of that because I, I had thought about adventure games being more text adventures, and I hadn't really thought about them, you know, having these you know, these, these graphics and being this more, you know, visual world. And then Ron went off to do all the humongous stuff, which was like, you know, taking that even streamlining it more because it was for kids and watching, you know, seeing how kids actually react to something like that and play a game, you know, and that's kind of a whole other thing. But in terms of sort of it being intuitive, you know, there was a lot of things that were intuitive about that because you would simplify a puzzle or whatever. But once again, the whole, notion of doing this graphic adventure thing with like, you know, an interface where you could build things, you know, out of words and ver you know, verbs and, you know, tick, you know, touch objects just became kind of this whole, you know, took on a whole life of its own, I think. And okay, so my ne- this is something that I've been wanting to ask for decades. What is up with the ending to Monkey Island Two? <laughs> What is up? What is up with the ending to Monkey Island Two? I don't know. That sounds like a very loaded question. It could be. It could be. In fact, I suppose I'll have to give some context to our younger listeners. Uh, without delving too far into spoilers, 
the ending to Monkey Island 2 seems to be like the longest Star Wars homage ever seen in video games. Now, but it, maybe not. Well, I think, you know, the Star Wars, you know, part of it, that was just... Uh, you know, we, we, we made a lot of fun of Lucasfilm. You know, because uh, you know, at some level, Lucasfilm was a slightly absurd company to work for. You know, and you know, one of the things was you know they trademarked everything, every single thing that came out of that company was trademarked. And you know, very very early on, you know, we just started putting TMs by everything that we did. You know, and you know, you see a lot of that. Uh, you know, in, in some of the early design documents we wrote, we just, you know, trademarked words just because we were really, you know, we were poking fun at, at Lucasfilm in a lot of ways. And, you know, even, you know, the mansion in Maniac Mansion is is um, based on, you know, the main house up at Skywalker Ranch. And it was just it was just making fun of it. And, I, and so I think, the, you know, the kind of Star Wars stuff in the end of Monkey Island, too, is, was just, you know, poking fun at Lucasfilm in a lot of ways. I see, and <laughs> I'm not sure if I'll get an answer to this, but I, uh, you know, uh, was it all a dream? That I'm not going to answer now. <laughs> I can say this: Ron likes controversy. He likes people to talk about stuff, and I think about 50% of the people love the end of Monkey Island too, and about 50% of the people hate it. And that's perfect for Ron. I'll just say that. Well, yeah, it's, it's 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 very. It's a very controversial ending, but I, I I think in some ways that ending, you know, can be explained um, by you know one of my favorite movies is Blazing Saddles, and if you watch that movie and you watch the end of that movie, there's a lot of similarities to you know to that end, the end of that movie and the end of, of Monkey Island too. It was definitely very much inspired by the end of Blazing Saddles. Mm. Yeah, the end of Blazing Saddles goes into very way. Where was there a fourth wall here? If there was, it's not here anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of between it being a story in a movie and being a movie in a story and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I just I love that movie because it just goes off the rails. Yeah, and and yeah. and I, and, I, and, I, and I just I always thought that was that was very interesting. You know, I mean, Mike Allen too that doesn't go off the rails as much, you know, or in the same way that Blazing Saddles does. But but that that whole thing interested me a lot, and it was you know is something I've always wanted to do. Right, and honestly, the ending to Monkey Island too reminds me a lot of the ending to The Prisoner. If you're familiar with that, I don't think I am now. Uh, I am and. The ending of the prisoner's weirdest. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, it's more it's not the same very controversial. Uh, but the ending to the prisoner is still controversial to this day. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it all comes back around to all of that stuff. You know, the you know that whole season of Dallas. You know, where she opens the shower and he's in there and Bobby's in there taking a shower. You know, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's just kind of like. I think it's kind of a riff on all that stuff. Yeah, I won't say more. <laughs> but that, that also comes into the question of, uh, well, there are sequels to Monkey Island that uh, neither of you worked on. I mean, oh, and that gets into what the, uh, there's a trope called a contested sequel. Like, you know, is Curse of Monkey Island and Escape to Monkey uh, from Monkey Island uh, in canon or not? 
Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't really answer that question. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I left Lucasfilm right after Monkey Island 2, and, you know, the the people who did Monkey Island 3 didn't really know where I was going with the story, you know. So I, I think they did their best to, you know, pick up from that. And, and you know, I, I think they did a, a very good job considering they had no real information about where I was going with that story at the time. And, you know, I've, I've, I wrote a big, long thing on my blog, I guess, a couple of years ago now about, you know, if I made another Monkey Island. And I, you know, I just I just kind of talked about, you know, a little bit about, you know, the things that I would want to do with another uh, Monkey Island. And if I did, you know, make another Monkey Island, it really would be my Monkey Island 3. You know, I would not continue the story from where all the rest of them left. I, I would continue the story from where Monkey Island Two ended, and you know I'd, I'd have to figure out a clever way to do that. Uh, I haven't figured that out yet, but that's kind of you know what I would do. You know, would do with that. So you know, are they canon? I mean, I'm not going to say they're not. You know, at all. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's not where I would have taken the story. Certainly, when we were thinking about doing symbol lead, we were trying to come up with ideas for what we were going to do. I mean, I had one that I would have been a great sell, which was you know. Um, uh, monkey Mansion on Maniac Island, but Ron just wouldn't go for it. <laughs> uh, right. right. Well, you know, it's like, and as far as contested sequels go, that seems to be more of a fan base thing than a creator thing. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, for the time being, Curse of Monkey Island is like the third Monkey Island game. You know, a matter of factly, you know, whether it counts or not seems to depend on the individual. Yeah, no, I, I, de- I definitely think it is. I mean, there's, there's, there's no way that I, that I would ever suggest that's not a proper third Monkey Island game. I mean, they, they did a great job on it, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to have it a part of the, you know, a part of the universe. Not Terminator Four. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes that can go off the rails. Well, I think Jim Cameron actually said, and, and he may have said this while we were still working on this kind of stuff, but effectively what he said is that um, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, once you, you know, you, at some point in, in, in time, you know, you won't be around or whatever, and if somebody thinks they can make money off of something, they will figure out a way to do it, no matter what you intended. I'm looking at the new novels right there. And it, no, but the other thing I think you have to do, you know, as as you know, anybody that creates anything, you know, whether it's books or movies or games or whatever, is there's a point where you make something and you release it to the public, and you you have lost some control over it because the you know the 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 people who are viewing this or playing this or enjoying it they're just going to have their own ideas for things and you know you can't you can't kind of keep a stranglehold on something you have you have to let it be free in a, in a lot of ways and you know you know if i ever got to chance to do an, another monkey island i would you know definitely be influenced in you know just in what people how people are responding you know, to the game. It's like you can't, you can't just go build something completely in a vacuum. You know, you have to understand. You know, what are people enjoying about what I'm doing? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And yeah, you know, it's like 
Well, well, and that, that, that begs the question. Did you guys ever actually meet George Lucas at your tenure as Lucas? Yeah, several oh, times. Oh, yeah. It, it, the, the interesting thing about, about that is that George Lucas, first of all, he, he was involved enough to come around and, like, check in, I would say, once maybe every three, four months, depending on what was being done. The guy who was actually more interested in what we did far more than George Lucas was Steven Spielberg, who was very good friends with, with George Lucas, but an avid gamer. So Spielberg would actually come around and talk to us and look at what we were doing, and sometimes George would be with him because he was Spielberg's friend, and because Spielberg was interested in it, George was, you know, kind of along to to you know talk about it or whatever or showcase it but definitely i think george was way more interested in making movies than playing games where spielberg might have been as interested in playing games as he was in making movies yeah spielberg was a huge gamer he he played a, he played a lot of games and you know he, he he played them a lot and he was very knowledgeable you know about uh, you know and talking about games with him Right, and for those who don't know, uh, LucasArts would eventually, uh, well, do an adventure game based off of a Steven Spielberg story, The Dip. Yeah. yeah, that was a game that got, you know, I actually worked on that game for a, uh, for a little time, you know, with Noah Falstein, and then, you know, it got handed. It probably went through, what, four or five teams that yeah, it, before it, the game it, was it, actually made? It made the rounds. Yeah. Well, it, it, from what I understand, it took, like, about five years and a couple of reboots to get out? Yeah, I think it was more than a couple. I think it had I think it had three big reboots in its uh yeah, yeah I mean in its production. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be honest, uh, you know, the dig is uh, not one of my favorite LucasArts adventure games. Yeah. I mean I will say relative to Spielberg's involvement, he came up with the high concept and then it was sort of handed off, you know. Yeah, I mean, he, I think he checked in a little bit, but for the most part, um, he wasn't super involved in, in that particular project. Yeah, and, uh, well, there is another uh, LucasArts project that I want to ask you about, Gary, and that's the Defenders of Dynatron City. Sure. What would you like to know, or do you want me to just talk about it, or what would you like to know? Well, well first of all, now... Well, what is it? Because I think I might be one of the few people on the planet who remembers what this was. Okay, well, what it was, actually, at least from my perspective, was I was trying to come up with an uh, with a property that could be sort of cross-platform, you know, so it could, it, it could actually be a number of sort of uh, media things, including a game. And my ultimate focus in the beginning, because I kind of came from the world of comic books, is I had this sort of, I thought was a very clear idea what I wanted it to be. And if you read the comics, I don't know if you've read the comics or not, there's a six-issue mini-series that I co-plotted with Steve Purcell and Steve Purcell wrote, which I think is actually a very funny series of books. Mm -hmm. And I I think that puts more context to what Defenders of Dynatron City is than the Nintendo 64 game, because the Nintendo 64 game actually ran into a lot of issues, which I can talk about as well. And so the NES game? Yeah, the NES game. So, so effectively, we did a comic book, we did an animated cartoon with Deke that was on Fox Kids, and we did the, the game, and we were doing all those things at the same time time and it was actually a dream come true for me at the time because I was completely into the whole kind of wacky superhero concept at that time and there hadn't been anything quite like that at the time that we did it so it 
know, there's been things like that since then, but that was one of the first of those things. You know, if I, I had to actually kind of describe it, I would have called it, you know, the Simpsons meets the X-Men was kind of what my Han concept was. And that didn't actually exist at that time in the world. And so um, what happened was uh, we kind of did a cross-promotional deal where JVC did the game with us. And also we did a... Um, uh, a, uh, a single episode animated special with Fox. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or seen it. I've seen it. I remember it. And then we also did a six-issue comic book with Marvel. Now, the six-issue comic book is the closest thing to that because Steve Purcell wrote it. And if you have an opportunity to sort of read Steve Purcell's dialogue or if you're familiar with his dialogue, I am. Steve, Pur- Steve Purcell is a very funny guy. I enjoyed the Sam and Max uh, series. Yeah, so so if you have an opportunity, read the Dinatron comics. You can pick them up pretty cheap. Um, but what happened was with the game, we had we had an issue where I'm going to say this this way: the person who was working on it kind of flipped out, and you know, on the engineering side, and so we had to scramble around and kind of replace that. And that the game as a game never really recovered from that. So it has incredibly bad, you know, collision detection and a bunch of other stuff that happened as a result of that. But there was just at the time, unfortunately, I'm going to use this kind of out of the control of the creative team. I'll just say that. So uh, I am not particularly proud of the NES game. I was proud of the concept behind it. And I like some of the art behind it, but Generally speaking, it's a very poor game on a lot of levels. And the TV uh, pilot? The TV pilot, um, I was actually reasonably happy with that because you need to understand in those days making a TV pilot was a very difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so you you had to kind of, I'm going to use the word, you know, simonize it a certain, to a certain degree. You had to sort of, you know, candy coat it to a certain degree. Um, it didn't have sort of the edge that I would have liked it to have. The comic books, once again, were the, are the closest thing to source material if you read those. And um, But all in all, given the constraints of what Saturday morning cartoons were, I really thought we were going to get a series out of it. And what happened, and there's, once again, there's a bunch of just sort of strange luck that happened. Margaret Loesch, who was the person in charge of children's programming at Fox, ended up getting breast cancer. Ooh. And... As a result of that, a bunch of stuff happened relative to whether or not that could have been picked up as a series. So a lot of, a lot of things affect how things happen. So that's kind of, I'm going to say, the logistical story in two and a half minutes. But if there's anything you want to ask me specifically about it, I'd be happy to answer it. Well, I'll actually do that. Well, uh, Yalix watched the uh, pilot the other day, and he might have some questions about it. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I do think uh, you came up with some uh, interesting ideas for powers, and the setting seemed actually... Co- I think uh, it was sort of candy-coated, but there was still sort of some of the stuff you could kind of tell that the candy-coating was sarcastic, which I think is which, uh, seems sounds like what you were kind of going for. We like would have gone for more. That, I mean, basically... The other thing that happened with that is that I wanted Steve Purcell to write that, and they insisted that a real television writer write it, a Saturday morning animation writer write it. And so there, there are other things that happen, like they, 
they insisted that Whoopi Goldberg be the voice of Miss Megawatt, even though nobody would know that. Nobody actually knows that, I think. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Um, she doesn't sound like Whoopi Goldberg, but they had a relationship with her. Um, Tim Curry was the voice of Adam Ed, and actually Christopher Walken was the voice of Dr. Mayhem, and the network didn't like him and had him replaced with an animation actor. I love Christopher Walken in the role. I think I have a, a copy with Christopher Walken's dialogue on it, you know, audio track on it. So anyway. That would be interesting. Yeah, so, oh. I, so that you have to deal kind of with, I will say this, when you're dealing with a thing like Hollywood, even if you're Lucasfilm or whoever, you know, there's all these politics involved. And yeah. sometimes you, you do things right and they take off and sometimes things go, I'm going to say, a little weird. All in all, I, I really had an amazing experience doing that because I was involved with Hollywood production, I was involved with the comic with Marvel, and also in terms of, you know, the game internally at Lucasfilm. And uh, I actually had a lot of creative control. I actually ended up with more creative control than most people get when they work with an animation studio or Marvel Comics because of the fact that we were Lucasfilm. And still, it was like just, you know, riding an out-of-control bucking bronco. So, sorry, I'll let you finish what you have to say about it. Well, just the way that it goes with everybody, like, the whole plot of the pilot involves, like, mutations mm-hmm. and stuff that people... And the whole thing is, like, the bad guy's like, I tried to get people to move away by getting them mutated, and everybody's just cool with it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of what I mean about how it's a little bit... That's what I mean about, like, sarcastic candy coating, where everything, like, seems kind of happy, but... Yeah, it's like read, you, read you the, can tell it's kind of weird. Yeah, read the comics if you have I, an opportunity. Now that if you now that I know there is such a thing, I will probably look those up because it's you can, really you can, interesting. You can get them on eBay and they're cheap. You know, they're like you can you can buy. There's six of them, and I think that you can buy them for like a buck and a half a piece or something like that. Yeah. Mhm. And and I don't get any money from that, but I would like people to sort of see that as kind of the closest thing to what the property was supposed to be. Uh, well, you sound very proud of Dinatron City. I'm proud of the comics, and I'm proud of the work that I did with Steve Purcell. Mm. Like, I hope you're. I hope. I hope you're not offended in any way by, way by this comparison. But I think the, a sort of similar thing happened to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where the original vision was not what the cartoon ended up being. Uh, I'll tell you this: I would have been happy with the success of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> um, you know, but. But the, the other thing is when you work for a company like Lucasfilm at the time or you work for Disney or whoever you work for, when you work there and you're a creative person, effectively you have a contract, and the contract pretty much says, you know, everything you think of while you're working for them belongs to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, you know, the curse of Monkey Island to a certain degree. You know? Right. And that, you know, people say to Ron all the time, why aren't you making a sequel to Monkey Island or can't you just buy the rights to that? And the answer is no. Because if you understand kind of the story behind that and the logistics behind that, it's not practical. Yeah, you'd have to convince Lucasfilm to sell it, and they really well, actually, you'd have to convince that. you'd have to convince Disney. So you'd have to convince. Oh yeah, them now. now it's Disney. So yeah, and Disney's actually you know not that Lucasfilm wouldn't be tough enough, but Disney's even tougher. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, they see they actually seem to be less tough than LucasArts was. If only because we've got Grim Fandango re-released. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. But that's just a licensing deal. 
that's yeah. you know that's that's not a deal to make a new game, and it's not you know that that um, you know Double Fine has any ownership of that stuff at all. Right. So I mean, they're you know they, I think they're more than willing to just kind of license existing stuff, but I don't know you know they they have shown no indication on you know doing anything new or original, and you know certainly they haven't shown any indication about being being able to you know, willing to sell any of that stuff, which, you know, for me, it's like, I really don't have an interest in just, you know, working on another game that somebody else is going to publish and have control over, you know, for me, for Monkey Island, I want to make my version of Monkey Island, you know, I want to make that game I always wanted to make. And that's just not a game that a giant company like Disney is ever going to let me make. Right. And so I suppose that comes up to my next question here. Why did you both leave Lucas? Uh, um, wrong to go first. Yeah, I mean, I left, you know, I left after, you know, Monkey Island. And, you know, like I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the of the podcast, you know, we didn't have that immediate feedback on how things were. And it's not like Monkey Island was a monster hit. You know, Monkey Island won you know, sold okay, but it actually didn't sell that well. Um, you know, compared to what the Sierra games were doing, you know, they were still just kicking our butt all over the place. And, you know, so it wasn't really like I was leading this, you know, giant successful franchise, um, you know, when I left. And, you know, the other thing was I got very interested in doing, you know, the adventure games um, for kids, which, you know, wasn't something Lucasfilm was really interested in doing, but, you know, that, that just kind of interested me a lot, you know, which is, you know, why I went off and, you know, did humongous entertainment. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of, kind of why I left. That answers your question. Yeah. I mean, in my case, I had been there for 10 years. I was actually the person who'd been there the longest at the time that I left. Uh, I don't, I, I think one other guy, you know, maybe Eric Wilmunder ended up staying longer than I did when you add up all the years. But I, and in the high tech business, most people don't stay in places for 10 years. I mean, it's kind of unusual. And I will say I liked what I was doing to a degree, but a couple of things happened at Lucasfilm. One of the things about Lucasfilm that you, uh, well, I'll say Lucasfilm games or LucasArts that you may not be aware of is um, Lucasfilm internally, LucasArts used to go through reorganizations about once every six to eight months. <laughs> so we would have like a new set of bosses or a new set of criteria. So, you know, at one point in time, when I joined Lucasfilm, we were part of the computer division, which was Pixar and DroidWorks and a number of other things. And then we were, you know, part of, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, it kept being reorganized. And then we would end up having different people to report to. And as long as Steve Arnold was there, Steve kind of insulated us and protected us, and he was somebody that Ron and I, we, to this day, you know, we get along with very well, and we, you know, consider him a friend, and we, you know, go to him for advice. But Steve left, and after Steve left, at least for me, there was less incentive to be there because I will just say it was not as personal as it had been. And then the other thing about Lucasfilm is, uh, I think Ian McKegg said this, Lucasfilm is the best place you'll ever leave. And effectively, Lucasfilm was a great place in that I could pick up the phone and get anybody to talk to me. I could, you know, get an appointment with anybody on the planet. But Lucasfilm existed primarily to make to 
sort of implement the vision of one person, even though we had a lot of creative you know, input. And that was George. You know, George kind of, you know, owned, you know, owned the company, and he would, you know, turn over, I will say, kind of the minutiae to different presidents and different CEOs. And depending on who was in that position, you know, certain things were more, you know, were, were more, more important to the company. And then the final thing I will say is that, um, you know, there was no um, uh, financial participation really beyond what we got paid. And although we got a good salary, it was not the kind of salary where you could go off and command, if you know, given our reputation, in a in a higher profile company that was either publicly held, where you could get stock, where you could get bonuses, where you could basically, you know, even go off. And in our case, you know, Ron started a couple of companies, and I've started a couple of companies, and we're starting a new company now. And you just couldn't do that from being in the rank and file. And there was a point in time where most people would leave to kind of sort of evolve mm. right so hopefully ron and i have evolved are evolving again right now indeed well and well that brings me to my next question how and why did you guys uh, reunite after so many years you want to answer that um yeah you know it's just you know gary and i have always stayed in contact you know we've we've always been friends and gotten together and you know talked about stuff and and i you know, i don't i don't remember exactly what it was but we were just you know we were just talking about um you know how much fun it was to make maniac mansion and i think you know for both gary and i that that period in our lives is something that we look back on very very fondly and and we were just kind of talking about that and how much fun it was to do that and kind of, you know, the simplicity of adventure games back then and you know, how everything was just kind of, you know, congealed down to these these really nice little puzzles and, you know, nice little iconic characters and art, and, and we liked that. And we just, you know, started talking about that and then, you know, said, well, you know, we should just try to do a Kickstarter and see how that works out. And, well, how successful was the Kickstarter for you guys? I was, I mean, it was very successful. You know, we asked for 375 and we got 625, Six. yeah, 26, something like that. And, you know, so, you know, from, you know, from that end, we, you know, we got what we asked for, which was what we wanted to do. You know, we didn't want to ask for less and, and we got, you know, we made all of our stretch goals. So, you know, we've got the voice acting and the translation, the languages and, you know, the iOS versions and, and all that. So, you know, I, the, it was it was a very, very successful Kickstarter. And I think we're just curious to, to do this again together and work on a project together because we actually have not worked directly on a project like this where we were both doing design together since Maniac. Right. And... Uh, I guess my next question is, how is the collaborative process different today as it was for many mentioned? I don't know that it's really that different. You know, we we just we get together and we just talk about crazy stuff, and you know, a bunch of it goes in the game. You know, that's yeah. how it worked for Maniac. I think the difference is that Gary and I both have a lot more experience. You know, we're there are there are things that we kind of more intuitively know you know aren't going to work or are going to work you know just because of our experience which can also be a bad thing you know because 
I think some of the reasons that Maniac Mansion, you know, is kind of a, a such a charming game at some level is because Gary and I didn't know what we were doing. You know, we just we we tried stuff, and you know, maybe a more experienced person wouldn't have tried those things. You know, and so that's something you always have to, you know, have to be conscious of. You know, as you get more experienced, is that you continue to try crazy and bizarre things. I mean, I will say one other thing in that working with Ron. Um, when we did Maniac Mansion together is we kind of got into this rhythm of what I'm going to call kind of this, you know, comedy, you know, humor thing. And to this day, you know, when we stayed in touch, we've still gotten all kind of the same jokes and we tend to sort of still think the same things are funny. And it's interesting to work with another person who has the same sense of humor. And it's hard to find somebody who can do that. And, you know, so so we've been able to sort of pick that up, I think, in terms of the fact that it, it just kind of works, you know. So what kinds of, uh, you know, crazy and wild things are you trying uh, or are you attempting to do on simple Well, I don't know that we want to talk about those specifically because I think a lot of the, you know, really bizarre and interesting things would be spoilers in a lot of ways. So, um you don't know that we want to talk about that, you know, from a, you know, a story, you know, or a gameplay, well, you know, yeah. standpoint. I mean, it's funny, it's funny that a clown who's cursed basically can't, can't take off his makeup. You know, that's his curse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I suppose I'll phrase it a different way. What can you tell us about the story and the uh, gameplay of the Thimbleweed at this point in time? Well, it's, you know, hopefully it's going to play very much like those classic pointing click games you know we have we have the whole verb interface um you know that you know you saw in maniac mansion and monkey island and and all those and you know that that's very important to us because it is it is very much kind of going back to that that golden era you know as opposed to being a you know a modern adventure game you know i look at games like you know kentucky route zero or you know even the stanley parables as being kind of a modern adventure game um, you know, and we really wanted to kind of go back to the roots of that, you know, of that stuff. So from, you know, a gameplay thing, I think, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of that classic stuff. But, you know, Maniac Mansion had a lot of dead ends. It had a lot of, you know, screwed up places where you could die. And we're not doing any of that. It's it's more of the design sensibility that went into Monkey Island with, you know, the same kind of, you know, comedic stuff that, you know, went into to, um you know, to Maniac Mansion. Yeah, I mean, the same way that, you know, Maniac is kind of a, a parody of the horror movies, uh, Thimbleweed Park is kind of a parody of, uh, you know, the X-Files and True Detective and, um, you know, a little bit of Stephen King thrown in, that kind of thing. Well, makes sense. So the next question is, uh, are you worried about inaccessibility? Like, are, are you worried that uh, this game might be a bit too old school for, like, newer players? I, you know, I'm worried about that and I'm not worried about it. I think I'm not worried about it because, you know, with the Kickstarter, you know, we were very clear about what we're building. And and I think a lot of the, you know, the, the real fans who are looking forward to the game, they want that old school gameplay. And we really want to be able to deliver that, you know, and not pull our punches, you know, in terms of what an adventure game, you know, really is. But that said, I do think there are, you know, rough edges that can kind of be filed away to make things a little more accessible to people. 
you know, we're not we're not going to do you know a goofy tutorial, you know, that's telling you now click here and now click there. We're not, you know, we're not going to do that stuff. But we have learned a lot about just adventure game design. There's a lot about you know helping players understand what it is they're trying to accomplish, and I think that all those things can be done within the context of the story. You know, they don't have to be done by your fourth walling with little pop-ups and little arrows to point things. But they can just be about the characters being, you know, more explicit about, you know, the types of things that they need and more helpful when players are obviously stuck. So I think you will see some evolution on that front to make the game more accessible. But at its core, it is a classic point-and-click adventure game. I see. One of the things that I think, you know, since I'm doing the art and that's kind of where I came from, is that I do think that there's a whole, you know, um, uh, accessibility to the way these things look. It's kind of like, you know, playing Monopoly or something. You know, I want to be the, the Scotty dog or the shoe in Monopoly. And what I mean by that is, is that people understand icons and a lot of people like, I'll say, my mom would have a hard time understanding, you know, what's on the screen in front of her if she was like, you know, some 3D thing with spaceships flying around where you could count every rivet. But when you look at something like the graphics for Maniac or the graphics for Thimbleweed Park, what you have is you're sort of playing a game with kind of what amounts to colorful, colorful animated icons. And you can look at an icon of something, and, you know, the, I will say the media has done a very good job of educating people as to what icons are and what they mean. And it's sort of this visual shorthand. And I think that, you know, we're sort of keyed into that when we did Maniac. And, you know, it kind of started to evolve and, you know, kept evolving, you know, past Monkey Island where you would get something that was more Chuck Jones-like or whatever when you did Day of the Tentacle. But I also think that, you know, especially when you have these tiny screens like you have on mobile phones or even, even all, dare I say this, an Apple Watch, that when you're able to play something that has sort of this real obvious recognizable thing that's an envelope or an anvil or a phone or a gun, those things actually might be more accessible to, I'm going to say, a general population just because of the fact that they immediately recognize this stuff. That's an interesting hypothesis. We'll see whether or not I'm full of crap. <laughs> we can come back and talk about it after the game comes out, and you'll go, yeah, you, you were full of crap, or I'll go, no, I was right, you know? Oh, definitely. We definitely want to have you back uh, you know, around the time of release. Sure. But good to hear. And, indeed, we are getting low on time, so just a couple more questions here. Uh, let's see. Uh, what kind of time frame are we looking at in the creation of Thimbleweed Park? And it's supposed to be out in, I think, July to the, in 2016. Yeah, that'll be the PC, Mac, and Linux version. It may take a little yeah. bit longer to implement the mobile versions because those are a stretch goal, but we have to build the PC game first. Yeah. And have you gotten any requests to do a console version of Thimbleweed yet? No, we haven't really talked to any of the console people. Um, you know, Definitely players would like to see it on there, but... But we we haven't begun any conversations with Sony or Xbox or anything. We I want I want to get a little farther down the path. I mean, get the kind of project you know going, and then um, you know I'll have those conversations with people. Right. Well, it, it's like just from a design standpoint, the Wii U be your best bet only for that game pad. Yeah, I mean, we we would love to be on all those. You know all those um, all those consoles absolutely. 
when we're taking the world by storm, those guys are going to be knocking on our door. <laughs> uh, yeah. See, I still don't live in the real world. <laughs> Never lived in it. Um, Even though I don't play World of Warcraft. Oh, uh, yes. And uh, any sort of price point you're shooting for? Uh, not, you know, we haven't really figured all that out. Mm. I haven't, we haven't kind of gone that down that path to, to figure out price and all that stuff. Well, by the way, I'll, I'll plug time for me. I'll say this to all the listeners out there, you know. If you didn't have a chance to participate in the Kickstarter, you can go to our thimbleweepark.com blog, and you can still, you know, get, you know, hook up on some of the stuff for, through PayPal. So you can get pre-orders, and you can even get things like, uh, you know, I think the poster or the T-shirt. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But yeah, those are on there. Yeah. So there's certain things. There's certain things that were sort of Kickstarter exclusives you can't get, but there are things right now that are PayPal exclusives you may not be able to get in the near future or the, or the not too distant future, depending I'm on. I may hop in on that little interesting. So. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the address is blog.thimbleweedpark.com. Uh, let's see. Is this coming to just Windows or is it coming to uh, Windows, Mac, and Linux? It'll be Windows, Mac, and Linux. And finally, is there going to be a DRM-free version of the game? Yes, absolutely will be. All right. And and on that note, I certainly wish I could continue, but uh, we kind of have to uh, wind things down here. You know, I definitely want to have you two back. You know, th- there's still a lot we haven't asked. You know, and uh, and I am personally looking forward to Thimbleweed Park. You know. Yeah, we we would we would love to come back. Sure. Right. Yeah, maybe we'll have you back in season four. Yeah. Yeah, we live for this stuff. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So, and other people would be glad as well. Uh, but anyway, so that's you know, Once again, I'd like to thank you very, very much for uh, joining us this week. This has been a supreme pleasure, and I will say right now, this has been one of my favorite interviews to have ever done. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot thank for you. having us. It was a lot yeah. of fun. Thank you. Anyway, so on next week's show, uh, well, we've got another uh, episode-long interview because of a long legacy. Next week, we're going to be having Ram Marquet, Director of Operations of Natsume. So we're going to be talking about the Harvest Moon franchise and more. Oh, man. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, until next week, all I can do is wish you good gaming. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.